and welcome to Newfiken. I am Irina and today I am talking to Julian Klein, who has recently finished his PhD thesis at the Swedish University for Agricultural Sciences. Hi Julian. Hello. Hi. Your thesis is called The Forgotten Forest on Thinning, Retention and Biodiversity in the Boreal Forest and it's on the topic of forest management. So let's start with um, the forest a bit. What forest are you interested in? So it's um, the boreal forest, broadly speaking, which is the coniferous forest belt in the northern part of, of the of Earth. And here I'm particularly interested in uh, those areas that are managed for wood production, fiber production. Uh, forestry in this part of the world has led to a strong decrease in biodiversity, and we want to know what we can do to change that. So this was your aim to find out how to change the trend in reduced biodiversity? Yes, pretty much. It's not thinking about conservation, like the very or keeping the forest as it is, but more what can we do within forest management to, to increase the amount of or the scale of biodiversity in those forests. So you were aiming that at the end of your study you will have some recommendations aimed towards policymakers that are responsible for the forest. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That was the aim that we can give, pretty much. Why is it important to study biodiversity in this way? Well, we see, for example, now in Sweden, there's a big outbreak of uh, spruce bark beetle, which is a consequence of uh, climate change on one side, but also uh, an ecosystem completely diminished. So these forests have very low resilience against uh, diseases or uh, insect outbreaks because they don't have any mechanism to fight those that otherwise exist in a natural forest. Finding ways to increase biodiversity will lead to a better resilience of the ecosystem against consequences of climate change, for example. But then also for the sake of biodiversity itself, the intrinsic values of it, other organisms also have a right to exist on this planet, not just we humans. And current efforts to change that are not enough. And then sort of academia has to come in to find out what is the reason why this is happening and what can we do to change it. And in order to communicate these suggestions or these, um, what we find out, it's important that uh, new knowledge is based on the rigorous methodology. So you said earlier that the Borrella forest is the forest that covers Russia, parts of Scandinavia and North America. Why do you call this one forest? Because it's the same sort of, from a biological point of view, it's the same system and it's coniferous trees. It has sort of the same climatic conditions everywhere, similar species actually. If it is not the same species, then they have at least the same function in the ecosystem uh, and also because this forest system, the boreal forest, is such a huge, is of such a huge importance to to the planet when it comes to climate change. I mean, what happens in the boreal forest is, after the ocean, the most important ecosystem for regulating the world's climate. After the ocean, is the ecosystem that is most uh, responsible for producing oxygen. First place, I mean, about fifty percent comes from the ocean, and then like I think twenty to thirty percent from the boreal forest. And also for the largest amount of uh, carbon that is stored in soils is stored in uh, the boreal forest. So if uh, these forests are cut down or if, if there's a lot of heating, fires or anything, all that carbon will go into the atmosphere. And, and that's also here where changes are much more rapid than in other places. And it's also here where you still find the largest areas of land that are that is untouched by it's not industrially exploited, not in Scandinavia, of course, but 
Russia, northeastern Russia, and, and large parts of Canada and, and the last. How is the Scandinavian forest special? Among the entire boreal forest, that has the longest history of forestry. Industrial forestry came here first. It's the most exploited region of the whole boreal forest. And it's also where we've seen the strongest decline in biodiversity. And, and it's also it's sort of like a little laboratory because what we observe here will, be, will happen also in, in other areas. If we do forestry in Russia or Canada in the same way as we do it here. So if we find methods to combine forestry with biodiversity conservation, if we can find a way to, to both conserve what is present and produce fiber products, then probably it's a good idea for people in Canada, Russia and Alaska to, to do the same. Definitely not a good idea for people in Canada, Russia and Alaska to do what Scandinavia has done. What is biodiversity? The number of species that you can find in the forest in combination with how abundant they are. You're on one side interested on how many species do you find in a, in a forest, but you're also interested in how frequent they are because you... If you just look at abundance, that's not very interesting. You can count the number of birds in the forest, but there might just be two different birds. But you can also think of that you you have uh, hundred species in a forest, and then you have one individual of, of all these hundred species. That is not very good either. So a mixture of those two is called biodiversity. And to increase biodiversity means that you increase both the abundance of species and also how many different ones exist. So when you are looking at the forest from this point of view, one of the things that you are interested in is biodiversity, okay, which is actually quite difficult to, to quantify. Mm -hmm. And what are the, the other characteristics of, of a forest? Well, you can measure biodiversity, uh, that's one thing, but you can also, you wonder, you wonder a lot about why you observe a certain level of biodiversity in a forest and then you you start to think about what kind of structures there are in the forest the structures are for example what kind of trees there are how old are they how how thick are they how many are there how dense is the forest is there dead wood what kind of dead wood are there really old trees just like the physical object that you find in the forest all these structures together make make up the ecosystem and and then once we know which structures are important we can also give advice to people that manage the forest because we cannot give them advice and say mm, you have to make sure you have this and this and these species in your forest uh, we need to tell them uh, you have to make sure you have five cubic meter of fresh dead wood of pine trees per hectare in your forest. That's something that people can understand and aim for. Yes, so you're talking about the long history of management in the Scandinavian forest. Can you talk a bit about its history, when it started and what it consisted of? In the 19th century, or before, I would say before 1850, people uh, didn't take down much trees in the northern parts of, of Sweden, for example. It was just uh, to, to get firewood for, for building and, and heating and, and large areas of interior northern Sweden were untouched. Uh, the Sami, the reindeer herders, they, they cut down some trees for the same reason and, and so on. But there was no, no industrial forestry. But the timber front moved through Sweden from the south and from the coast. And they took out the largest trees that they could find to sell for ship masts and other building material to the 
rest of Europe or even beyond. And with that money, Sweden paid for its industrialization. That went on until about the 1950s. And now we're speaking about the northern parts of Sweden. So from what we refer to as Norrland. And after 1950, after the Second World War, uh, forestry became industrialized. And then uh, they started to do these clear cuts where large, large areas, sometimes thousands of hectares, were cut down completely and um, plowed with machines and then replanted. And while the young uh, coniferous trees were growing, they sprayed it with uh, hormonal treatments that would get rid of uh, deciduous trees until like the 1970s and then so that was when the industrialization of forestry was at the highest level and then these uh, hormonal treatments were forbidden and, and clear cutting became smaller and in the 90s they even started to take biodiversity into consideration and leave small patches of forest standing on the clear cuts that are considered to be important for biodiversity for example. That's in the 90s, that's when it started with sort of thinking about biodiversity and thinking about getting production and, uh, and environmental goals in line and sort of weighing them equally, in theory, at least. This was the northern part of Sweden. And in the southern part, the history is much longer because the southern part of Sweden, sort of the history of, of industrialization is much more like the history of industrialization in the rest of Europe, Central Europe, where the use of nature has been long-term and has been grazing and the forest has always been used in uh, quite extensively. But for the northern part, it's a very short history of exploitation. And this is why I still find the uh, pristine forest in, in northern Sweden. Nowadays there isn't any more clear-cutting, but instead... So the, the forest is still clear-cut. You remove about 95% of the forest. But they leave a little bit of protection, uh, five meters, two streams, uh, mires, for example, because these are more sensitive environments. Then they might leave patches of forest standing, small patches, like maybe half a hectare or something, and also leave single trees standing. But the area itself is still 95% still cleared away. What kind of consequences has it had? Can you give examples of... Yeah, it's mostly species that are confined to um, old-growth forests. Uh, these are, for example, fungi that need a continuous uh, supply of dead wood. Dead wood that has grown very slowly, where these rare species have a competitive advantage against more common species. Uh, and then also a lot of fungi that live in the ground. Uh, if the trees are cut, they lose their mycorrhizal symbiosis. So they lose the symbiosis to the trees that they have. And they cannot re-establish if new trees grow. And then lichens, for example, and mosses that are reliable on a, on a stable humidity in the air around where they grow. And if, if the forest is cleared, too much sun comes in and these species go extinct. And they, it takes a very long time for them to re-establish. So if you let the forest grow, they will come back. But it will take 150 to maybe 800 or 1,000 years. And what is forest thinning as a management practice? Mm, yes, my thesis was about forest thinning. And when the forest tree grows after clear cutting, uh, they plant it and it starts to grow. And uh, they plant many more trees than what they want to harvest in the end. Some will bend, be bent, some will be die. Uh, there are other trees grow that they don't want to have. And when they harvest, they want to have them all of the same size so that they can send them to the same sawmill. So you go in, they go frequently, they go in with machines uh, to take away all the trees they don't want to have, tree species they don't want to have, 
and also the trees that have not grown straight or they take away trees that are bigger than the average and smaller than the average to make it as uniform as possible. So your thesis has then focused on this um, industrial forests? It's really industrial forests that are already very uh, low in biodiversity compared to natural systems. From a biological, ecological perspective, perspective a degenerated ecosystem already. We, we don't wonder how we can we get the level of biodiversity in these forests back to what it was in the old growth forests. I consider that to be impossible. Can you tell me, in short, what were your policy recommendations? Yeah, when it comes to forest thinning, I could show that um, if you leave an area of about one hectare untouched during thinning, you don't thin, uh, then this can conserve bird species, at least, that live on these forest stand before they can still thrive in this forest and after thinning, even if you thin the rest of the forest conventionally. And for lichens, um, I can show that if you increase the tree species richness, so the number of tree species that grow in the forest and, and the mixture of them, if you make an even mixture of the tree species and you, you have as many tree species as possible, which is in the boreal forest, maybe just four or five, you can almost double the number of lichen species that you can expect to find in the forest. Okay, so you have very quantified results and recommendations. Let's talk a bit about how you ended up doing a PhD. No, I, I did a bachelor in uh, at the University of Zurich in, in Switzerland in biology and then a master's in ecology with fieldwork in uh, northern Sweden, where I studied the Siberian jay. It's a very beautiful, charismatic bird. And uh, when I studied that bird in northern Sweden, then uh, some of the forests that we studied just disappeared. And uh, I had thought that uh, such vast clear cuts is something was something from the past. Would not have expected that forests uh, so beautiful to my eyes would just be cut down as if they were just any kind of forest, because these kind of forests they don't exist in Central Europe where I grew up. So I got more and more interested in the question of forestry and and how can uh, do forestry that is less destructive to biodiversity. And this ad came out about this PhD about forest thinning and I first thought, ah, well, forest thinning, I'm not sure how important that is or how interesting that is because I, I wanted to do research about conservation, like conservation of net of the natural environment, not uh, conservation in sort of the industrial environment. But then I, uh, yeah, I, I needed a job, so I applied and uh, Good decision. I liked the last four years. So, uh, how prepared did you feel when you started to do research? So I, I, I felt quite prepared. I, I would say the university education in, in Switzerland is a little bit different. You're asked to be independent much earlier there. Uh, so the master thesis was already one year of independent work. You really had to put up a research plan and collect data and analyze the data. In the same manner as I did during my PhD, I had to have knowledge about statistical methods already during my master thesis and know how to use the software that you usually use and also communicate it and write in a scientific uh, manner. So your PhD was uh, very empiric. You talk a lot about collecting data and having access to data. And it was also, and that I found quite surprising, you did an experiment with a bit of actual forest. Can you talk about uh, this? 
Yeah, it was quite a big experiment on 250 hectares. Uh, so we got this uh, forest from a forest company called Holmen in Sweden, a big landowner, and they are interested in the forest companies. Don't know so much about the effects of thinning. They've previously only studied the effects of clear cutting on biodiversity, so they wanted to know what what about thinning, but. They just provided the forest and, and we could tell them what to do with the forest and they would do that. They cooperated really well and it was really nice to interact with them. But they weren't involved in the research part of things. It's important to stay. So, But anyway, the experiment, that was of course a bit of a, something that got my heartbeat frequency going up a bit uh, because it's a lot of land and you, you don't want to to uh, mess it up. Not a chance that not... Uh, many researchers get to do an experiment this like because that is sort of like the the gold standard of research that you have a system that you can study before then you have treatments uh, dif different things you want to do in the forest and you assign these treatments randomly to the forest and then you change the system and then you look again afterwards and you compare before after and so on so in the end, how large were these areas that you assigned to different treatments? Yeah, we had 117 plots of about one hectare. And, and we selected 58 of them, 59. And uh, each of them got uh, a treatment randomly assigned. One was nothing happens at all. We do nothing to it. Uh, one is we thin conventionally. So we, do, we, we don't even tell them where the plot is. They just do whatever they do there. And one we marked 250 small uh, spruce trees that should be retained so that spruce, these small spruce trees, they should give protection to insects and birds close to the ground. And then we went in and we looked at all the stuff before and we looked at everything after. How long? Three years for the whole. I like the first year. I when I started, I planned the whole study, then I, I counted birds in the spring and we put up nest boxes and my field assistants went out and measured all the birds and, and counted flat, uh, the, how many young ones there are in the nests and which birds that, uh, that live in the, in, the, in the nest boxes. And we, ha we hung up um, two different kinds of insect traps and we measured the forest, all sorts of stuff in the forest. We took GPS positions of everything and measured visibility and... And then in the first winter and the second winter, the forest company went in and did the thinning according to a treatment. Probably hundreds of thousands of small um, like tissue markings in the in the forest and with different colors. And so the, the thinning is done at winter? Preferred uh, to do it in the winter time when you have uh, frost in the ground because then the ground is solid and the big heavy machines don't damage the... Uh, the soil to the same extent. And your findings? And I know you've said it before, but if you could summarize it. The results that come from the experiment, actually, I only have one article evaluating the results of the experiment, which is about where we looked at all the bird species that we observed in the forest during these three years and how they react to the three different treatments. And this is like some bird species react strongly to conventional thinning, strongly negatively. And these are birds that live uh, close to the ground and in, in like more dense forests. A lot of birds reacted sort of moderately negative and no, not a single bird species reacted positive. And we saw that in complete retention plots, uh, no birds, except there only, was only one bird, the willow tit, which reacted negatively to, to that treatment. 
So you only looked at birds for this, not the lichens as well? No, we also looked at uh, the amount of flying insects in the forest, um, which we collected with, and also beetles. We had beetle traps to look at how beetles react to these treatments, and also epiphytic lichens. We're going to look at them again because it needs a bit of time uh, until they sort of new lichens grow uh, and some have disappeared depending on the new conditions after thinning. So we, we're going to look at them maybe two years from now. So in the end, we're going to have data from before after for all treatments on birds, breeding success of some bird species, beetles, flying insects and uh, epiphytic lichens. What allows you to generalize to longer time frames? Because I guess the end result, these recommendations, are meant to to direct you what to do year after year. Um, so forest thinning is, um, they do that every 20th year maybe. Okay. So um, we can only, when it comes to birds, now these recommendations are insects, we can say that uh, this is an immediate reaction after first year and we were actually going out and, and looking again after three, year, three years and, and sort of see how it has changed. And if we get different results, what's happening, then it can be that five years from now, 10 years from now, some of these species come back. But uh, during the next 10 to 20 years, about 60% of the Swedish forest is going to be thinned uh, in the way that it was thinned in my study. And even if, this, if my results just hold for three years post-thinning, it, it affects a huge part of the Swedish landscape and what happens with it. But the aim is to sort of follow it up in the long term. About the recommendations, I will ask, who are they aimed at? Is it the forestry companies directly or is it the policymaker that regulates the, the companies? Well, I think both. I mean, it depends on the, on the system that you have, because in Sweden, you have a system where the government doesn't directly interfere with, uh, in many cases, with how forestry is done. There are very, very few laws, if any, about forestry. If people wanted to change the system to, to more law-regulated, where the government or society says this is allowed, this is not allowed, then, you could, then my results would be directed to, to lawmakers to say, okay, we, need, we make a law, we need 20, every forest stand needs to have 20% deciduous trees, for example. That would be a, a law, I could, or 30%, and it's something I could recommend. That forestry in Sweden is is regulated um, uh, through market certification. So it's it's uh, labels, these FSC or PFC labels, that uh, set the standards to sort of like a, a a minimal standard to how much should be done for biodiversity in in forestry, and and then I can suggest to the people that make these standards to follow these recommendations, for example. Okay, so thank you. This has been really, really interesting. I... Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it was cool to talk about my PhD. You have listened to Nufiken. This was Irina talking to Julian Klein, who has finished his PhD thesis at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. If you want to know more about Julian's research, you can find out more on our website, newfiken.co. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as Curious Newfiken in one word.
This episode of New Vegan was published in February 2021.